I'll go for the next few weeks as a study the prominent themes of Sefet Beit Hashit, no doubt. You will not be surprised by any of these themes or ideas as they form the core, not only of Sefet Beit Hashit, but of course of Parashat Beit Hashit, and actually as Jews, all of our lives center around the essential core values that are contained in the book of Beit Hashit itself. All, everything is based on the ideas, ideals, and values in Parashat Beit Hashit and in Sefet Beit Hashit itself. Here we're going to be introduced to those critical notions that totally and absolutely define our lives as Jews. One cannot escape, if one lives life as a Jew, from these ideas. Interesting is that we find that Sefer Bereshit and Parashat Bereshit specifically are rarely taught as a source book of ideas, ideals, and values. People really focus on the values that we contain in Bereshit, but rather they study the Pesukim perhaps, but they don't focus on the ideas, ideals, and values that emerge from these particular Pesukim. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in a second. Rabbis may be Doresh about the Perashah itself, and it'd be interesting to do a survey, let's say this coming Shabbat, as to what the Rabbis spoke about in terms of this Perashat Bereshit. But in terms of the ideas, ideals, and values, doesn't always happen. And we'll explain why in a moment. We're going to specifically focus on the most prominent ideas, ideals, and values as emphasized in Parashat Bereshit. Let's raise the question. Why have people missed the focal point of these ideas, ideals, and values? I would say, because the Torah is too pedagogically perfect, especially Parashat Bereshit and Sefer Bereshit. So what does pedagogically perfect mean? Well, think about it. Let's say you have a child to whom you want to communicate your basic ideas, ideals, and values about life. You lived a long life, God willing, you're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, and now you want to communicate those values. So that, what's your first mistake? To live 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's too late to teach your 50-year-old kids or 40-year-old kids your basic core values. When do you want to begin teaching your basic core values? Now when the person is 30 and 40 and 50 years old, if you're 80, that kid's 60, that kid's 50. No, you want to teach your children when they're very young because you want the core values to be part and parcel of who they are as people. To the extent, you might challenge this, to the extent that, let's say, honesty is a core value of yours. If it is, do you want your child, when he reaches the age of 18, to think about being honest? Or do you want to be a knee-jerk reaction, no matter what the situation is, I am honest? Which kid is a better brought-up kid? Any value to think about, not to lie. Do you want your kid to think about maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't lie or should it be part and parcel of his personality? We do agree that we all have character traits. We're born with some. We develop others. But a lot of what we are as people are rooted in who our parents were and what they taught us either explicitly or implicitly. Let me take a non-threatening value to illustrate the point. Let's say our parents grew up during the Depression as many of our parents did. And money became the end-all and be-all of their existence because they had to feed their families. It wasn't very simple. 
the 20s, the 30s, you heard, we all know, our parents told us stories that my father at 12 years old was not taking money out of the family, getting allowance, he was putting money into the family by selling neckties and socks door to door. It's true, your father, my father, yes, absolutely, <laughs> told me every week that. And my grandmother would go to his top drawer. We kept the earnings you know, for that my week. Father did? Sorry? You know what my father did? You know, on, on 67th Street? Yeah. He, used, he used to sell ice cream. Oh, wow. By the schoolyard. That's incredible. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Really? Right across the street from the shore. That's yeah, astounding. Like ice cream thing. <laughs> ice cream stand. Did he have a stand? <laughs> or he had it, it was very short-lived. You know why? Because his his profits melted. <laughs> <laughs> he had a freezer. He had a freezer. That was very funny. <laughs> so he ended up selling candy or something. In the <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm amazed. I hear some the of these stories. Some of these people it's sold Subway, Yankee Stadium. You hear these stories. Nickel, they used to sell. On, they used to walk back and forth. Could, you had to make I a living. Some of the men, I can could, I could visualize some of the things. Yeah, you had to make a living. So that became... One guy sold watermelon. It wasn't Moreno either. It's had a watermelon concession in Coney Island. It's astounding. Said, we wouldn't even think of these things. And yet, it's so interesting how... And I was I had a very interesting conversation yesterday about... Um, uh, the next step in life and enjoying life. So, upon reflection at 2 o'clock in the morning, I came to the conclusion that my parents, father specifically, by example, and maybe somewhat explicitly, taught me how to survive life, not how to enjoy life. Whereas my kids now, for example, are enjoying life. One kid went off to Israel, husband takes off for a year from his law practice, I'm studying, I'm in this, I'm doing that, and writing a PhD thesis, all that. She's enjoying life now. The other kid left his superstar financial investment firm to do what? To go to Argentina for six weeks, study Spanish, then go to Israel to learn maybe, who knows. Uh, that's what he was talking about doing. Well, hello, you're 26, you're not 15, you're 26. I never went to Florida, I never went to, that did nothing. I learned well and always had the confidence that I will survive life. And I remember telling Emily decades ago, we will get through life. We will have food, we will have clothing. I will do what I have to do in order to survive life. I didn't promise her a rose garden. I didn't promise her we we're going to enjoy life. Hence, we, no vacations, no honeymoon, no anything. We just, I didn't learn how to enjoy life. Am I extreme? Those are the, the superficial enjoyments, Rabbi. You have the real oh, no, no, enjoyments. No. Oh, no, I do definitely okay. enjoy well, life. Well, oh, there's no doubt in that sense, yes. You know, the, the guy who goes to Florida every winter, you know, to him, it's Passe. It's, it's, it's the second yeah, home. It's, it's no big deal. I think it's no, no. I think it's a big deal. I think Joe Gindy loves going. I think people. It's, it's an enjoyment. Re you reach his stage. I mean, <laughs> come on. Okay, you, I agree that, that I'm, I'm I'm supremely happy with my choices, yeah. no question. But still, in all, I don't even think of these other things. You Vacation. Get enjoyment from other things. Uh, it's true. I do. I do. But, but, but you feel like you're. I'm the missing the. Person yes, I feel I'm missing enjoyment. something. Even as as a teenager. I never went to Florida. The kids went to Florida. Mitchell, they all went to Florida. I'm going to Florida. You didn't have a good time there. Oh, good. <laughs> You're much better right now. That, it was freezing. <laughs> Even better. Good. So was you right. Oh, in college. I'm at Paulie. Yeah, we're driving out to Florida. No, I don't want to go. Cost money, I don't go. Money became the defining because it was part of my core value system of surviving. Money. Everything. Don't use the phone. Don't. This. So core values that's could a, be that's taught. That's funny. Of course, the kids, my nephew sometimes, when I see him, we had the famous class, my sister mentioned rest in peace. I'm on long distance, the kids, they're no more. Absolutely. No, who called long distance? We, we, no, we did. 
Well, we got the, we got the Cleveland, Toledo, Detroit, or Blue. Where we travel, we called home person to person to collect the Elliot. Oh, well, you did one of those deals. Oh, you did that. Okay, I heard of that. I heard that of that. I wasn't so honest. I heard of it. it. <laughs> right. It, it's astounding how lights, air conditioning, uh, thrift, heating, no, thrifty, yeah. thrifty. <laughs> all those, because that became survival tactic. Okay, interesting. So that became a core value. On the other hand, other issues left on your own. Yeah, other values not so clear so some values are absorbed in the environment in the household what you do relating to people and some values are learned and taught so therefore getting back to our original point the parent who teaches his core values when the kid's 50 or 40 or 30 too late you want your kid to be taught his core values as he grows up so now that's an interesting dilemma so when I say, and I'll tell you one second. So when I say that Torah is pedagogically perfect, it wants and must relate to the developing, growing child with these values to make the values of Parashat Bereshit, the ideas of these values, to be part of the core. And yet, what do you risk? If you simply state your core values in a very simplistic fashion, then as the child matures and grows and develops, he may not have those core values delivered to him, communicated to him, in a more sophisticated fashion. So he'll remain with a underdeveloped core value system. Mm-hmm. What would be an interesting example of that? Or prior to that, let's raise the question, how do you teach values to children? By example, we know that. They should give, I don't know, but they should give a, a paper before you have a baby and tell you how... Okay, they don't. Correct, but they don't. Should be, how are you but, supposed to know... Well, you, you read books. We, we read books. We read 40 books. Emily and I read 40 books when we had a baby. Now, you may not have read books, but we read books. Didn't help, but okay, we read books. We read books. They have all that stuff. We learned all the, the magic years, uh, years 0, 12, 12, 24. Kid does this, kid does that. Kid should do this, kid do that. So you do read. I mean, it's you could like become. Having trouble with twenty-one plus. <laughs> no, it started at twelve and twelve plus. It started with. So, so the, the, the answer to that question is: you read, you read, and you you go through the motion. You do what you got to do. Okay, so we do that. But Torah therefore decided the way you teach is to imitate. Of course, that goes without saying. On the other hand, through narrative, stories contain essential core values in Torah itself. We are wired to appreciate and remember our stories that we read. Novels play a great role. Fiction plays a great role in our society culture, but throughout history. Movies, television, ongoingly, look how much time we spend in the narrative part of life. We l- and therefore, if we read the right stories, our core values will be absorbed. Implicitly, as well as explicitly. Who cannot read Crime and Punishment which is a long novel, and not be affected by the notion of the conscience plays a role in punishment. You commit a crime, the perfect crime, you get away with it, nobody's going to let you did it, but your conscience is going to be that telltale heart beating away that's going to ultimately reveal you as the criminal. can't escape your conscience, as you cannot escape your, your shadow. So, it's narratives that really form a core of values if they're the right narratives. What happens to the kid who's raised on Hansel and Gretel? What happens to the kid whose core values are established not by Torah narratives of right and wrong. Happily ever after. 
or the happily ever after. See, that's the interesting fair question. Fair right. So you have to raise the question, what narratives do you choose to share with your children that's going to form their core values? I think I mentioned once before in this context, there was a great book in the 50s called Why Johnny Does Not Know How to Read and Write. So that, everybody, every teacher knew about it, read it, okay, good, because we failed in education. In the 80s, there was a new book, early 90s, by a professor of education at BU, BC, why John is not no right from wrong. We're failing morally. And the answer was, he did a sickle survey of how much violence, rape, thievery, that a kid sees by the age of 12. And he compared it to the kids who grew up in the 50s, who grew up in the 70s. They grew up in the field, father knows best. And exactly. Right. So and then he said. So right. So why he says should anybody be surprised that, let's say for example, divorce is an easy, simple uh, option when the kid see, sees 40 divorces, the Gilmore Girls sees 40 divorces writ large every single day, and it's okay. Mother and daughter survive well without the husband. I don't know divorce what have happened, but that's one of the popular kids and program. So, as opposed to My Three Sons, as opposed to Father's Best, as opposed to all the romantic comedies of James Garner and Dara's Day, The Thrill of It All, Pillow Talk, and Move Over Darling, and all those, which presented a very happy, harmonious family life, which perhaps you may agree, you may disagree, should be your ideal, and you strive for that ideal, <laughs> as opposed to cheating violating dignity, lack of dignity, fighting, screaming, yelling. To what degree does the narratives of what's out there, movies, books, novels, affect people? There is a, um, just now, uh, I think Sex in the City, Sex in the City something, else. I didn't see it, but there's a movie, Sex in the Sex City. Sex in the Single Girls. Single Sex in the City. Oh, yeah. That's a movie. Yeah. About four women who lose love, life, love life, we'll, we'll edit this somewhere, <laughs> who lose, I didn't see the movie, but who the kids are talking about, that it's about these women who get rid of the husband, at the end it's happily ever after, but each one goes through a miserable time. And there was also a movie, yeah, something like that, there was also a movie in the 80s about Bet. Bet Midler or something like that. Three women, something about a, a, a joy club. Something I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. But three women who again who threw the husbands out. They were abused, threw the husbands yeah, out, etc. Well. So to what degree does that affect what women are willing to do when they want freedom, liberation, and to be abused? So that's an interesting question. But when you study it, as this particular book, Why Jenna's No Right from Wrong, it's a great book. I have it inside. It was a really wonderful reading book. When you see what the kids are reading and seeing and doing, that's going to affect them. Core values. If they're reading. Okay, if they're reading the or, or seeing or watching. It's music all has one. a lot of influence on uh, oh, that. As well. That as well. Good. So Torah, of course, sees itself pedagogically perfect as that which is going to create a narrative, a story form, which we'll see in a minute, which will contain our core values, on the one hand. On the other hand, Torah wants it to be read not only as a narrative, as a story, but as something which should serve as a springboard to discussing and developing and elaborating and expanding those very core values in order to have the person advance in all those ways to be able to handle life with core values. It's easy to tell a kid don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal. So it becomes part of core values. It should be. But what happens when you have a more complicated question such as should I steal bread to feed my baby brother who is dying of hunger? 
That's a more complicated moral question. If you don't steal, he dies. If you do steal, he lives. That's a reality for many people growing up. Maybe not for us, but for others. When morality is an absolute, it's easy and that's childlike. When morality becomes more complex and it's great, what do I do to make a living? Do I pay off the buyer when everybody else is paying off the buyer? If I don't, I don't make a living. If I do, I'm playing on a fair, competitive field because everybody's paying off the buyer. What do you do? This is how that's changed. Well, that's changed. Okay, now. Right. Long time. I hate to say it. They're American buyers, but you know, who's a Jewish buyer, the chance are much easier. Astounding. But they are. I'm not going to tell you. They're going. So, what would you tell your kid? What would you tell your kid if he comes to you and says, "I'm 22 years old"? and I'm starting business not working for you let's say and look in this industry you're in this and he's in another industry you got to pay off the buyer and you know that it's true and if you don't you can't do it you tell him leave the industry but I have nothing else to do what am I going to do? It, it, I, I would say something like do it with open eyes you know there are those who got caught and they lost their jobs also now not then not in the 80s not in the 70s it only had last 15 years right when with the advance of computerization and Right. And and people looking at records and and they really computer the inventories and everything they do because years ago Sonia was telling me before we were talking and I, my brother called me about something he's running a test program with somebody so she's saying she remembers when I was a kid she went with her father when he sold the handkerchief to Bohack Bohack used to be a supermarket I remember sure yeah and he used to go check the stores out and he used mm-hmm. to buy all the stuff off the shelf yeah w- I said that was very common practice it would look like they've done that. I could never understand to get reorders he used to take us with him I had no idea oh that's fascinating we yeah. did it also we did that's it that's fascinating I never thought about that put the Woolworths and you put it in McCrory's they have 2,000 stores they gave you a couple of stores Whoa. you go around you spend $500 you buy all this stuff now they didn't have computers then. Oh, the good salt, the good salt. Let's put it in all the stores. Hmm? Very common. I used to be with my friends watching him do that. And I, I mean, something grew over it, I guess. Which is a fascinating. Maybe I don't know. Is that, I don't know. It's a fascinating notion. You know what else I used to see him do? I used to don't see tell him. me. I don't tell me. No, 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 no. I used to see him. Let's say there were four handkerchief things on the shelf. I used to see him take the ones that he sold them and put them in the front. <laughs> I used to watch I don't know how old I was. Maybe I don't know. Six, seven, eight. <laughs> I did the same thing with my pants or the tops that I did. I went into a store that I sold, and I, I first I would ask the girl how what's selling. What's, I would talk to the girl on the, to get information, to really get true information, find out what's going. What do you think? How it should look like? You know, my pants. This pants selling better than the other. What do you think? It's re, is it color? Is it fashion? Is it fit? Is it fabric? I would ask all the questions. Some of them were very helpful. They would take you through the whole store. But you. Which is appropriate. Would, That's what's wrong with that. But but you would definitely would take your garments or your commodities and put them up front and make sure they're clean and neat hang tags were perfect okay but if you were Good. in a business so, so these you are the understand the business head of it if you were what? Yeah, if you were in a business oh right. right 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 a right. business person you right. understand the head of it it wasn't a bad thing to do it wasn't even a, a, a not a moral thing to do either I mean I, I, mm-hmm. I it's, it's a fascinating marketing technique most businesses have ethical codes now. Okay, now, so about 15 years ago. So my question was, if your kid asked you... The, buy, the paying off the buy day is almost non-existent. Oh, we agree. Okay, but 20 years ago, 15 years ago, your kid asked you, that's the way you survive. I remember. Do you tell your kid, you got to survive? Do what you have to do? Don't get caught? I remember Mac Towell. Mac Towell. 60s. And we have this problem paying off buyers. I forgot what the answer was. Oh, that's the most important part. 
I think, you know, Hubbard always had those double-sided answers. That's true. They always never gave you a straight answer. We okay. let you. See that? Okay. That, double-sided you, answer. Yeah. It's, it's, you know how you did it. But, but see, that's... See, my knee-jerk reaction to, to Hamburg saying double-sided answer... you did. Yes, is he had to because if he says, be honest, the guy loses business. He says, be crooked... I can't tell him to be crooked. So what do I tell a person like that? What do you do? He was a master of that double, you know. Yeah, double language, double talk. Yeah, okay, good, I agree. So that's a very serious issue. So it's very hard to provide the right values for your children because it's not an absolute moral world. It's not a cut and dry. It's not a cut and dry, but it really is. You want your kids to be honest. I don't want kids to play games with... with well, I say with my kids. Uh, what so do I always tell you? Be, be honest. No, this week. No, what I tell you every time, like of David's now, with this camp, I said you make sure that you tell him that no matter how anybody tries to sway him to uh, buy something and uh, or they need to get paid off or something no, that of comes not. up, but they're not. He's, when they're naive, when you think they're naive anyway. So I, I, I tell him make sure that you, that there's no doubt in his mind. That if it ever comes up, there's no shot. Just make sure. Mm. And po- excellent point. I don't know why you told him. Tell him. Why don't you tell him? But either way, I think it's, it's a g- excellent point. He won't listen to me. He won't listen to me. He won't, uh, no, no, I mean, he won't show me that he's listening to me. Good point. Agreed. But, Agreed. But it's, it's a him, great point. Think it's Ongoingly, you want to remind your kids not yeah. to fall to the trap. Right. That the others, that other, the temptations. The temptations. That's and it's there. Absolutely. Interesting, of course, that chapter 3 of Bereshit talks all about temptations. The root of sin is temptations, at least in chapter 3, Gan Eden. Mm-hmm. So Torah does want you to be aware of temptations. So get to that down the road. Okay, good. So therefore Torah drapes its core values in a narrative because it does want you, it to become a core part of the youngster who reads it. On, and on the other hand, it will in fact engage those who know how to study it properly on a much more sophisticated level. And we have to be able to grow from a clear black and white moral value system because kids need that. Because you have that, then you can deal with a more ambiguous, difficult, gray area of deciding what's morally right or wrong in that particular context. But you must have an absolute bad system right and wrong to know that there is a right and wrong. What if they're desperate? Okay, good. That's what you have to figure out. That's the point. We will we'll come to that. So one has to be able to do that. So now, on the other hand, by contrast, something like the Constitution of the United States of America is, uh, as we all know, a most extraordinary document. It guided this country for 200 years. And yet, does it relate to the masses? How many of the masses have read any portion of the Constitution of the United States of America? And yet, it's interesting that... They've read, they've read uh, some of the Bill of Rights. That's <laughs> only the first ten. <laughs> right. And it's interesting that... Especially it's, to it, their arms. it's mainly for the legislative part of this government. Supreme Court justices understand it, know about it. Yet it was not written and is not read or taught to the average person, even though it's the average person who's going to vote for the passages of those laws by supporting that particular congressman or not, and for the Supreme Court legal situation. So we decide what we want to judge us, guide us, and legislate for us, and yet we're not fully aware what are the values that undergird this entire country. We don't read the Constitution. If that's where our values are, presumably it is. So you find a very difficult situation here where that Constitution is not contained, it does contain, but is not 
make it accessible for the average person. An interesting exercise would be if you would be able to, let's say, take. What is that? Well, the framers, the framers. Yeah, well, more than that, the frame. No, the framers of the Constitution, who are brilliant men, should have written the Constitution in a way that it would be accessible to people, not in legalese. And yet, what are the core values of this country? So interestingly enough, the Constitution does contain the core values as well as the question of independence, and yet they have not ritualized for us to read it. We don't know it. And yet they framers hope that when you establish a democracy, somehow these values, these ideas will filter through. And therefore we will make the right choices. So what has happened in America is that sometimes we have, sometimes we haven't made the right choices. For example, in like Roe versus Wade, which is the issue of abortion or not. Does a woman have a right to abortion? I have a right to abortion. So here people are arguing 40 years later as to whether or not it's the right decision, not the right decision. Something like capital punishment. Is it right or is it wrong? We're still arguing about it. So people don't have a firm grasp that both of these questions really go back to the rights of the individual the ideas upon which the country is founded, and these are massive legislative issues, and yet we are not clear thinking enough because we don't have a firm grasp as to what other values that this country is founded upon. We don't study it. We don't know about it. How can it not be part of your high school education? Better. It should be part of your... Well, history 101. Well, I... What was the we civics course given in public we school? We didn't read the Constitution, but... What was civics the Constitution? I don't remember reading the Constitution. Independence? Wasn't that government? don't remember reading it. Wasn't the course in the public high schools... They had civics. Civics. Right, they did. We didn't. That was government, yeah. But we had American history. Well, we learned yeah, that. but that wasn't... Uh, it, but, but, okay, but, but first of all, it was hit or miss. Because if your teacher didn't happen to get up to that particular period, then you didn't study it. If you started 1786, or you started early, or you started later, or you had part one or part two. Part one and then part two. But it wasn't necessarily covered, and it wasn't ritualized. We didn't read it. If anything, you studied it once, and that was it, at best. But to, to one, you know, in one, uh, there's one thing that we all did, and we, we did the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, that we did. Okay, okay that's the, one way that we that ritualized it. It was, it was ritualized. Right, right, so we ritualized that, which is great, right. although even that wasn't done in Yeshivot. It was done in public school. We didn't do it in Yeshivot. Oh, we, didn't do it. we did it. Limitedly? No, we did it. Every, what, when did it stop? Second grade, first grade, third grade? Okay. Mrs. Powers didn't do it in third grade. Mrs. Madonna didn't do it in fourth might have, grade. Might have skipped a few years, but... Uh, I remember doing it. We did a certain points. I don't know if we Even continued on. I remember with Rabbi Suri in sixth grade doing it. Yeah, oh, I remember that. that Rabbi Suriya. We had a Chambaruch Baruch in sixth grade and Rabbi Suriya. Yeah, I remember doing it. Sixth grade, Rabbi Suriya. Brethren? Yeah, we had him for three years. So we had him in fifth grade. We had, we had Mrs. Jordan. Now we know Mrs. Jordan. I had right. what, what school was that? Mrs. Flapp, Okay, anyway. so in any case, so the idea would be to make sure that this should be a ritualized behavior, that all people in this country should understand what the values are. But, you, but you're right, Jay, the contrast with, um, with the Torah and with the Judaism, they are, you know, they are all that, all what you said, they're, they're inculcated, they're... Uh, ritualized? They're first, we have the, the narrative of a beta sheet, and then it really is hit directly in, uh, in Shemot. Oh, absolutely. With all the... Um, no, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It's ritualized in, in daily and weekly right. reading. Right. As, for example, studying. we'll get to the point, the most...
powerful idea in Bereshit is God Creator. Where do we ritualize God the Creator? Ritualize. You say it again and again every day. Shabbat. Shabbat. Kiddush. We say these five lines. We say these five lines every Shabbat, Friday night. God the Creator. But what happens, and this is the other part of this problem, is that if the narrative is so fascinating and engaging about a speaking snake who curls up to Eve and is tempting her to eat from the apple, that we end up focusing only on the narrative and not on the ideas that emerge from the narrative. So then you have a problem. Because then you need the pedagogue, the teacher, to be able to extrapolate, which our yeshivot don't, the values the ideas, the ideals. Let's say you read only Bereshit, Parashat Bereshit, and you don't get the notion of God as Master, Sovereign, Creator. When you're in third grade, second grade, first grade. I don't... Uh, my recollection of those teachers in those early years, I don't know if they were able to do that. If they exactly. Were, okay, we agree. You know, I agree. You're absolutely greatest, right. The greatest story. It wasn't... Yeah, and all you do is memorize... It was exactly. A lot of memorization. Memorize the, lot, the seven days. What was created? The issue of... What does this really imply is not dealt with. Poor pedagogic technique. So Torah gives a very simple, detailed, limited detail of creation, though it might have been much more scientifically complex. Seven days, seven acts of creation, whether it was 14 billion years or not, not important. And it's a very simple, easily understood narrative with one critically important idea, God as Creator. Bore Olam, the Almighty, who can do all that He chooses to do. It's simple. And yet, what if a kid finishes second grade or third grade or fourth grade and doesn't have that understanding, that idea, core value? It'd be an interesting situation. So, here we have a Torah which seeks to educate the young the immature, and the masses, that they will have a basic knowledge of these ideas, ideals, and values, and yet wants to intrigue enough that when you go back to Bereshit, five years later, ten years later, you will still be engaged in different multiple levels. The simple core superficial meaning is very straightforward and very interesting. Very There, it's a nice narrative. And that telling of the narrative should help a child begin to think of these ideas, ideals, and values, that there is a God. It's interesting because people will question God's existence. Others don't. For some people, God's presence, existence, is as evident, as obvious to them as their own existence. For others, it's a challenge. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, I don't know. So you wonder, why did two kids go through the same yeshiva system? One kid has an absolute clear-cut sense of knowing that God exists without even a question, and the other kid has a question. I'm not sure. So what happened psychologically where two bits of information taught to the same person, and yet one came with what came away with one conclusion, one came with another com- completely different conclusion. What translated differently? What hit the wrong note or the right note? How does a core value become so evident, so obvious, they're so intertwined with your personality that it is undeniable. To the extent where, let's take another value, not to lie, becomes so obvious to some kids that they will never lie no matter what. And other kids will not be late, will cheat on a test, and don't see it as a problem. Goes back to core values. So, is it when it was taught 
how it was taught, the personality of the taught, all those are factors. So Torah over here has the very difficult job of trying to teach the very young as well as the very old, the immature as well as mature, the mass as well as the elite, has to put all that in this book in order to make sure that ultimately Torah will educate, will stimulate, and will inspire the leaders as it tries to provide a basic core for all of the others as well. We want the masses to be educated slowly, different way, different level, as well as the leaders who establish policy and implement policy for them to be fully aware of what the core values are. So now, let's try to begin with a statement as to what are the narratives, most famous narratives of Bereshit, obviously, Garden of Eden, Cain and Hevel. The, gener- the Dora Pelaga, where the language are all confused. Very cute narrative. But what's it really all about? Most people read it, say, see it as history. They read it as history, that's it. No, I would tell them, read it as philosophy. Read it as a source of values, source of ideas, a source of ideals. That's what's really there about. Whether it happened starkly or not, or how it happened starkly, I would say it's irrelevant. Whether it was a snake or not a snake, Yes, there was. No, there was not. doesn't matter. What matters? What are the ideas, ideals, and values that these narratives represent? You can read all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the rest of the sheet. Is it there to tell us about our history? Yes, fine, it does. But is it not more significant to see it as people who are living values and yet tested in those very values? Example given. Let's say Abraham has this very strange situation. He leaves the land of Canaan because there's a famine and now he has to go down to Egypt, goes down to Egypt and he's concerned about his wife being taken as a matriarch, a mature, dignified, elegant, graceful woman by the king's harem. So what does he do? He either risks telling the truth and losing his wife to the harem or tells it to lie. And then, interestingly enough, later on we'll say, she really is my sister. She is my sister. Half-sister. So what's the moral status of Abraham at that point in the narrative? And yet, which makes it even more interesting, more difficult, he's richly rewarded by virtue of that, in quotes, lie that he tells. Tell them that you're my sister. So I'll be richly rewarded because of you. So he does. My sister, she's taken to the king's harem. So he didn't really work out. His goal was, you're my sister and they won't kill me. But they won't take you either. Presumably. Presumably. So instead what happens, oh, she's your sister, we want her. This thick woman of dignity, grace and elegance from the, uh, higher, from the aristocracy of Canaan, we want her as part of the king's harem. She's taken there. Who knows what happened to the king's harem? So there's a man tested, not by his belief in God, because A, why'd you go down to the God says, here's your land. Take it. He takes it. He gets it. Famine. He leaves. Was that appropriate? And then he's thrust in a situation where he must now decide is he trust in God and do what's right, in quotes, what's right, meaning, true that she's my wife, but they may kill me. So, they kill you. Instead, you're going to lie and they may take her as a woman to the harem. So here's a man with a real difficult moral problem. And 
from there, throughout the book of Bereshit, each of the forefathers are thrust into difficult situations. What does Yaakov do when he's confronted with Lavan's situation? Does he manipulate? Does he, does he act honestly? Do you act dishonestly in order to survive? And does that ultimately reward you or does it punish you? Esav, Yaakov, each of the situations that they found themselves in represent either moral or spiritual crises that has to be resolved. Dina is raped. What do you do? Do you charge your children to go ahead and kill the entire city? Was that right? Was it wrong? Or ultimately, let's say the more difficult situation, Yaakov is married to two women, Rahel and Leah. Each has children. Okay. You're a child of Leah. Your name is Reuven. You understand, suffer in silence, that this was a bizarre, dysfunctional situation. Yaakov wants to marry Rahel. My grandfather switched the wives around. He marries Leah. Okay. And that result, you pay a price. What's the price you pay? My mother is hated. She's hated by Yaakov. Hated is the word used, right? We know that. Look it up right there. She's hated. We understand why Yaakov felt wronged by Levan, wronged by Leah, wronged by Rachel. Wasn't her fault, perhaps. So he loves Rachel, relates her. Okay, so the years pass, years pass, years pass. All of a sudden, Rachel dies in childbirth. Now, you fully expect that your mother now be treated properly. I understand, stood behind, stood back when Yaakov loved Rachel. Wouldn't sleep in Leah's tent, despite the Dudaim, etc., etc. Good. So now Rachel dies. Okay. So now comes the situation where Yaakov is now moving his bed into Bilhah's tent which is the maidservant of Rahel, almost as, psychological terms, transference. I loved Rahel, she died, I now love the woman who will take her place, Bilha. So now your name is Reuven, and you say, no, I'm not going to allow my mother to be second fiddle to a maidservant, though she was second fiddle to the other woman, her sister, that I understand, I accept it. This will not happen. So you have to present, what are you going to do? I am going to go, and now, sleep with, Bilha, in order to make sure that my father does not go and move his bed into that tent. Right or wrong? However we understand the text, is it right or wrong? You are protecting the dignity of your mother, which is an absolutely positive value, not to be shamed and embarrassed by a maidservant of the other wife, who now is no longer with us. What should one do? If you do nothing, you run the risk of your mother's indignity, shame, embarrassment. If you do something, you risk the anger of your father, which you're willing to risk. You're willing to risk that. Throw me out of the family inheritance, I don't care. Lose everything, I don't care. I will not tolerate the dignity of my mother. Do you act or not act? So these are the moral slash spiritual crises that the forefathers faced. And each one is offered up to us to analyze to moralize us, to make us into more moral, spiritual, appropriate people. That's what Bereshit is all about. Forefathers have all these crises that they have to deal with on moral and spiritual grounds, and that's what we analyze from A to Z. Good. You know, this reminds me of just one second. If uh, someone loses a, a spouse and then they meet somebody right away, 
Sure. It's, have it all the time. It's almost the same time. Abs- all the time. Right. It's an interesting issue because we often judge that person. Right. Yeah. And that That's might why be. I'm saying it. Sure. No, it's, yes. it's, it's correct. And I think the Torah's idea is to take those situations of life that you're raising, that people do raise, and sensitize us to the human dimension of those issues. Mm-hmm. And that's what literature does in general. The study of literature is the study of values. Good literature. Whether you're studying Shakespeare or anything good. If you're not, again, if it's not good literature, it's a different issue. If you're studying anything that's a good classic work, you're studying values. And however it plays itself out, right or wrong, in or not, you read the Tale of Two Cities, and what Striver says at the end, he says, this is a great, far greater thing I do today than I've done before. He's going to go to the gallows because of whatever he had done. All of that literature, just it's heroic, it's degrading, it's fascinating. There's a new book that just came out which tries to analyze or discover as a historian Hitler's library.